0: Well, to use Caitlin's words, we're going to open the Bible and read it together. Um, We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, starting in verse 9. If you're using the Bible in the pew, that's on page 524, or you can also follow along on the screens. So Ecclesiastes 12, beginning in verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails, firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is God's word. Praise to our risen King.
1: Well, for the last three months, at least, if not longer, I've been asking myself a question. Some of you have been asking the exact same question, maybe not as long. I know because in hushed tones and through text messages, you've been asking me the question. The book of Ecclesiastes works during Lent. A preaching study through the book of Ecclesiastes works during Lent, this time of searching and sacrifice, a time for sober repentance and serious reflection. But does Ecclesiastes work on Easter? That's the question. That's the question many of us have been asking, does Ecclesiastes work on Easter, on resurrection morning? Well, we'll find out. <laughs> but I think it does. I think it can. At the end of the book, hopefully if you have a Bible, you can just leave it open. It's somewhere around 5, 23 or 4, could, 6, 5. I didn't hear what it was said there, going from the last few weeks where it was at. But let's leave it open. I want to read just a little bit more of it. Um, At the end of the book, we come to what the preacher calls the end of the matter. Reading from verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard, he says. That phrase implies a final verdict. No more discussion, no more deliberation, no more footnotes, no more nuance. Verdict. Finality. About this time, two years ago, I had jury duty. And jury duty for me took a a number of, but but one particular, wild turn of events. Beforehand, I asked a lawyer at our church uh, what I needed to do to get picked on jury duty, if someone could help his odds, so to speak. And the lawyer told me, um, the one thing I needed to do was to have a low jury number, what he called so I show up, um, and again, I'm, I'm the weird sort of person who wanted to be picked. I don't know if I don't have enough sermon illustrations or something. I thought this would be a good source, but uh, and here we are. Um, but I show up on the morning for jury duty, and I'm number 47 of 50. <laughs> so, uh, I, to me, it didn't sound like a low ner- jury number, um, And I'm seated so far in the back, I can't see the the lawyer's faces uh, or the judge's face. And I don't get picked for jury. I don't get picked as the first alternate, but I do get picked as the second alternate. (laughs) A week later, I report for our day in court, two jurors don't show up and I'm the 12th juror. (laughs) And then after seven hours of testimony, I become the jury foreman. Which means that I get to lead what was, shall we say, a spirited conversation for several hours into the evening, which didn't go particularly well. But then, after all the testimony all the examination, all the cross-examination, all the witnesses and experts and law enforcement and detectives and the defendant himself, all of, after all of them have spoken, after the prosecution and the defense have made their closing arguments, after all the deliberation by the jury, I stand up and read the verdict to the courtroom generally, but particularly to the defendant, which in this case read, guilty. The end of the matter Ecclesiastes is a book about the meaning of life, the end of the matter. How how do you summarize the meaning of life? How how do you boil everything down? No no more footnotes, no more nuance, no more dissertations, just, just summation. What do you say is the end of the matter when it comes to life? Now maybe you don't like questions like that because they feel too big. I'm not sure many of us like questions like this, which is why most of us don't major in philosophy, right? But whether you like the question or not, I I suspect we can see the helpfulness, even the necessity of such a question from time to time. In the beginning of our passage, the preacher, as he calls himself throughout the book, he he reminds us who he is. There in verse 9, we read, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying, and arranging many proverbs with great care. This is one of the details in the book, one of several, that helps readers see a connection to the preacher in the book with King Solomon, a king renowned for his wisdom and proverb writing, even the book of Proverbs we have in our Bible, or at least much of the book of Proverbs. Now, perhaps Solomon himself, Is this very preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes? Or perhaps someone else wrote Ecclesiastes a little bit later, the way Solomon should have written it. A few weeks ago when we began this sermon series, I mentioned Prince Harry and his new memoir, Spare. The world has seemed to be quite interested in this book, Spare. That's understandable. Prince Harry is an interesting person. He's the son of the iconic Princess Diana. He's the husband to actress and model Megan Markle. He's famous and has a lot of wealth and influence and all of that. Now, Prince Harry's book, I don't know whether you know it or whether you've picked it up, but it it opens up with this story of him in a garden. It's a garden cemetery, and he's waiting for what he describes as a secret meeting with his father and brother. This is when life has gotten hard for them and the royal family as though you know, it wasn't a lot of the time. But it's a few hours after his grandfather's funeral and he's there for this secret meeting without the press, without the rest of the family. And after talking, he's walking the garden by himself and after talking about royal family members who are in that very cemetery and their bodies are in that garden and he's talking about their life work and the royal squabbles. Prince Harry asks readers, somewhat rhetorically, his own questions. Did any of it, here's a quote, did any of it matter in the end? I wondered if those who had already died wondered at all. Were they floating in some airy realm, still mulling their choices, or were they nowhere, thinking of nothing? Could there really be a nothing after this? Does consciousness like time, have a stop? Close quote. Did any of it matter in the end? He asks. Prince Harry seems not to know, but the prince in the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, if you will, does know that what matters in the end matters a lot. And he wants you to know it too. He knows what he's about to say at the end of the matter it's going to poke a bit. It's it's going to be hard to hear. So before telling us the end of the matter, he has one other thing he wants to say first. At the end of his sermon, before he gets to the end of the matter, he wants to say something about the Bible and about God who wrote it. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. The words of the wise are like, he says, goads. Like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They were given by one shepherd, my son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books there is no end, of much study is a weariness of the flesh. We don't speak of goads or an ox goad very often, most of us anyway, especially on Easter. But a goad is this long stick with a point on the end and The point on the end of the goad wasn't to injure the oxen, uh, but for the shepherd to apply pressure to the animal to redirect the oxen, to to keep the oxen safe. And the preacher says that's what the Bible's like. It might poke and prod at times as it has for us during this season of Lent. And the Bible might feel like it's pushing us at times in directions we don't want to go, we don't understand fully, But the preacher wants us to know who holds that goad. The one shepherd, he writes, meaning God. The preacher is saying that behind the words of human authors is the voice of God. And this statement about the Bible and this phrasing about goads makes me think of the apostle Paul, maybe a few of you as well. Paul, who was first called Saul, had thought he was following God. In reality, he was guilty of following his own pride. He was trying to earn his way to God. The the words Caitlin used, he was living under the law, just trying to stack up a resume that God would approve of. But then the risen, resurrected, living Jesus showed up to Saul on the way to a town called Damascus. And Jesus confronts Saul for his sin. He tells Saul the guilty verdict. And he makes Saul temporarily blind, that, that goaded. And then Jesus sends other Christians to him to tell him about God's love for him and his plan for his life. And you can re- read all about that in a book of the Bible called Acts, Acts chapter nine. But here's what's interesting. Here's what's interesting. Acts chapter nine, 25 years later, Paul retells that same story to a group of people. They don't know the Lord, they don't know Jesus, and Paul wants them to know the Lord. And and Paul's looking back, for us it's Acts chapter 26, he's looking back 25 years, and he retells that same story. Here's how Paul recounts that interaction. I journeyed to Damascus. That language of kicking against the goads, it's it's not mentioned in the first account. Now, I think it happened. But 25 years later, he's looking back and he feels different. That phrase of Paul likens him to an ox. When Jesus, through his word, is trying to get his attention, Paul kicked violently back against it. How about you? You ever done that? God's getting your attention and you you kick at him? I I don't want that right now. Thank you very much. I find Paul's mature reflection on his own conversion fascinating. The good news of the gospel about the risen Jesus who offers salvation that couldn't be earned Paul heard that at first and in his pride that wanted to earn his salvation that felt like something to kick against rather than to receive. But then later the good news of the risen Jesus became what he built his life upon. What about you? The good news of the risen Jesus has it become this thing you're going to build your life on or are you kicking against this good news. All of this is set up for what the preacher calls his final comments. He has trouble coming to a conclusion. Can you? I can be sympathetic to him. <laughs> You're not preachers, I suppose. But he has trouble wrapping things up. But he's going to. The end of the matter has two things that we might kick against, but they are for our good. Look with me again at the final words. Verses 13 and 14. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. The preacher speaks of fearing God and God's judgment. These goads might not seem like good news. Maybe they don't to you right now as you hear them, but they are. We have to understand these words from this preacher in the context of his whole book, of his whole sermon, and not only his book, what he calls the collected sayings, the whole of the gospel good news story of the Bible. Remember, remember, here we have mature Grandpa Solomon sitting on the porch, talking with his son about life. Solomon had nearly limitless wisdom and servants and pleasure, and the the queen of Sheba visits from the south, and she goes up to visit Solomon, and she cannot believe the extent of his wealth and wisdom, and about all that wealth and all that wisdom and all that pleasure and all that knowledge, the preacher says, boy, that ain't it. The preacher tells his son, indeed, he's telling you, the end of the matter is to fear God. Now, that may be strange wording to you, that may goad, but when you think about the things you fear, I think we would recognize the things we fear have a certain power over us. If you're afraid of the dark, afraid of snakes, spiders, mice, you have a certain reaction to these things. Maybe less humorously if you fear certain people or health challenge like cancer. Or you fear a relationship that might never come to be. Or a career path that might not ever happen for you. And you you fear these things. That fear has a certain power over you. That fear shapes your behavior. And Solomon says that if your highest fear, if your highest reverence and awe is toward God, that fear will order your life, but in a good way. We see here the link between Solomon's two books, the book of Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes. These two books link together in this one singular, definitive admonition to the people of God to fear the Lord. And we might use other words. We might say it differently, but Solomon... What what, what he wants is for you to be in a relationship with God where God has the highest authority in your life. And that would be terrible news if God were not good. But the one shepherd is the good shepherd. At the end of Solomon's life, after he chased all that could be chased and he ruined all that could be ruined, The preacher wants you to know God. And that changes his view about these, our view about these lines about judgment. Look at the final verse. Again, we read, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The mature reflections from the preacher sees God's judgment as blessing. That's strange. Except... In this sermon of sorts we call Ecclesiastes, nearly 30 times the preacher has said, he's used this phrase, he says, we live under the what? What does he say? Under the sun. This life as he describes under the sun is harsh. And life under the sun, injustices seem to have the final word, the final verdict, Throughout the book, over and over again, the preacher is given example after example of injustices and evil. Good people get punished. Bad people get blessed. This is why God's final judgment is good news to the preacher. You see, we often live, at least many of us, not all, but many of us live in this semi-comfortable middle class We're thankful for God. Largely, we just want him, though, to make our lives better. To us, a hope of a judgment seems strange, out of place. But think of how this promise of judgment encourages the oppressed, the persecuted, the abused, the downtrodden, the people with no recourse in the courts to bring about justice. I'll put it like this. I'm a pastor who sends his children to a school called Covenant. It's just five minutes from here. But there's another pastor who sent his child to a different school, also named Covenant, 15 hours from here. And she didn't come home. Lost under violence under the sun. And these words here in Ecclesiastes about a final judgment are words of hope to those who mourn. They promise that this world will one day be the way it was meant to be. And it's here. It's right here where Ecclesiastes and Easter collide beautifully. After all the testimony and all the evidence has been considered, all the examination, all the cross examination, when the judge looks Solomon in the eyes, the final verdict over Solomon's life is guilty. When every thought, word, and deed are weighed, the guilty verdict hangs over Solomon's life as it hangs over mine, and I would submit to you as it hangs over yours. So, what's Solomon's hope? What's the end of the matter? Solomon's hope is that someone greater than Solomon would come and make this world right. Solomon knew our problems in this world and our problems with God could only be fixed by God. When Jesus was once asked a question in the Gospels, in the course of answering this question, he said, quote, something greater than Solomon is here. Matthew 12. Forty-two. Oh, church, this morning on Easter, lift up your heads. The cross is empty. The tomb is empty. And if you, by faith, fear God in the right ways, then you have nothing to fear. When Solomon died, he died. When the one greater than Solomon died, he rose again. And because Jesus is risen from the dead, everything the Bible ever promised will come true. Because Jesus, the one shepherd, is risen from the dead, it means for you that he will come again in glory to bless his people. Because Jesus, the good shepherd, is risen from the dead, it means for you that every sin, every wrongdoing will finally be defeated. Prince Harry said he didn't know whether one day we'll just cease to exist. But Prince Solomon is part of the greater story. Part of the collected sayings. And he tells us that because Jesus is risen from the dead, anything and everything that has ever kept you from experiencing the highest joys and the greatest happiness in life will one day be no more. Because Jesus is risen from the dead, everything sad will come untrue. Because Jesus is risen from the dead, the one greater than Solomon gives us what we could never earn instead of guilty in God's final judgment, we don't simply hear forgiven or innocent, but friend. And when we sit close to the final judge and the final jury, sit close enough to see his face, we'll see him smile. Ecclesiastes works on Easter because the preacher's Only hope is the Easter story. The preacher's only hope and our only hope is the story of the one greater than Solomon who has come and is alive and will come again. And in his coming again will be good news. I'm gonna pray and invite the worship team to lead us in song. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we sang moments ago that we are not afraid to show you our weakness. And yet some of us are because we don't know you yet as fully as we will. That in you, justice and holiness and mercy and love exist in such a way that the gospel it's good news. Lord, we thank you that you, because you came up out of the grave, we will one day as well. In the name of the risen Savior, we pray and we sing and we rejoice on Easter. Amen. Amen.